the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. James Blind is engineering and producing today's program. Today we're going to talk with Karen Swallow Pryor. She's the author of On Reading Well, Finding the Good Life Through Great Books. And I love the way she approaches some of these uh, classic books and what we can learn about the old virtues in these uh, these volumes. We're also going to talk with Nick Loris. He's a Herbert and Joyce Morgan Fellow in Energy and Environmental Policy at the Center for Free Markets and Regulatory Reform. We'll talk about Hurricane Florence as it's barreling toward the Carolina coast and uh, the suggestion that there's a link between uh, this storm, others, and climate change. Uh, we'll talk with him about that. And also we'll hear from Michael Jr., who's coming to Portland, of course, on uh, this Saturday. The More Than Funny Tour is coming on 7 o'clock, or I should say at 7 o'clock on Saturday at East Hill Church in Gresham. By the way, tickets are still available at kpdq.com. I have to tell you, I'm sitting here looking out the large windows on the uh, side of the studio, and I'm marveling at the rainfall. It's extraordinary. It looks very much like, I don't know, the Pacific Northwest. It looks like Oregon, Southwest Washington, with all this moisture falling from the sky. I have to admit, last night when I was um, I went to bed early and was watching Miss Marple on television and heard this background sound, I thought, what on earth is that? I, it's been so long, I'd sort of forgotten. I turned the volume down and it was an, a, a deluge. It was just falling, like kind of like it is here. Uh, right now. And it was kind of a refreshing reminder that we do live in the Pacific Northwest, and this is more familiar than what we've experienced over the last few months. Although summer isn't over yet, we have until the 22nd of September. So uh, enjoy the rain. It's going to be coming, well, now and then over the next uh, few days until fall actually arrives. Well, taking a look at some of the developing stories of the day, Hurricane Florence could become a once-in-a-lifetime storm and cause historic flooding. Some meteorologists are warning as officials in Virginia and North and South Carolina have ordered mass evacuations of more than a million people. A Rudy Giuliani-backed former police officer seeking to become New Hampshire's first black congressman won the state's GOP primary, while Senator Bernie Sanders' son was defeated decisively in the Democratic contest. Majority Leader Mitch McConnell has warned that Republican lawmakers in hotly contested races will be in a knife fight to hold on to their, uh, their Senate seats in the midterm elections. And a war of words between fired FBI official Peter Strzok and top Republican Republican lawmaker has erupted after newly surfaced emails shows struck uh, discussing a media leak strategy against President Trump. Pope Francis will meet with a delegation of U.S. cardinals and bishops at the Vatican on Thursday to discuss new sex scandal revelations that have rocked the Catholic Church. Well, as Hurricane Florence, a Category 4, sometimes 5 uh, storm, drove toward the East Coast. Lawmakers from three states in that monster storm's path ordered mass evacuations for more than a million people. North Carolina Governor Roy Cooper, whose state alongside uh, South Carolina and Virginia, is forced to see life-threatening storm surge and damaging winds, warned residents of the potential extreme conditions. Forecasters said Florence was expected to blow ashore late Thursday or early Friday, then slow down and dump about one to two and a half feet of rain that could cause flooding well inland and wreak environmental havoc by washing over industrial waste sites and hog farms. President Trump uh, today said that... Er yesterday, rather, was given an update on uh, Florence by the head of the Federal Emergency Management Agency and vowed that the government was prepared to respond to the impending hurricane, adding that the public safety was his absolute highest priority. The president also declared states of emergency for the Carolinas as well as Virginia and canceled campaign events Thursday and Friday in anticipation of the storm. Well, a Rudy Giuliani-backed congressional candidate seeking to make history as New Hampshire's first black congressman emerged from a crowded field to win the state's GOP primary Tuesday. Bernie Sanders' son um, was trounced by a large margin in the Democratic contest. Eddie Edwards, a Navy veteran, won convincingly over state um, Senator Andy Saborn, rather Sanborn, who had the endorsement of Kentucky Republican Senator Rand Paul. Giuliani called Edwards a strong conservative who believes in low taxes and is a supporter of the American 
uh, America First agenda of President Trump. Democratic Representative Carol Shea Porter's retirement has made the New Hampshire seat much coveted among Republicans. There had uh, not been an open seat in New Hampshire's first congressional district for more than 16 years. And fittingly, 16 candidates vied on Tuesday to fill it, including 11, 11 Democrats and five Republicans. Well, the district which uh, Fox News ranks as leaning uh, Democratic in November is considered a key potential battleground in November and a rare opportunity for the GOP to snatch a blue seat. On the Democratic side, Chris Pappas, a former state lawmaker who's serving his third term on the governor's executive council, won the party nod. Pappas, uh, who is openly gay, topped Maureen uh, Mara uh, Sullivan, a U.S. Marine and Iraq War veteran who served in the Department of Veterans Affairs and at the Pentagon during the Obama administration, both finished well ahead of Sanders' son, 49-year-old Levi, who did not pick up his father's endorsement. Mm. Majority Leader Mitch McConnell on Tuesday said Republican candidates in the most competitive races across the country are in a knife fight to hold the Senate. McConnell, uh, speaking to reporters in Louisville, Kentucky, said it's uh, just a brawl in every one of those places. The Kentucky Republican said he hopes when the smoke clears, we'll still have a majority in the Senate. He named nine states, including Tennessee and Indiana, as places where Senate races are dead even. Not long ago, 2018 was expected to be an easier year for Senate Republicans. Democrats were supposed to be playing defense as Senate candidates ran in conservative states that Donald Trump handily won two years ago. But Real Clear Politics lists eight Senate races as toss-ups, Texas, Arizona, Indiana, Montana, Missouri, Florida, Tennessee, Nevada, and North Dakota. Some involve red state incumbent Democratic Joe Donnelly in Indiana, Claire McCaskill in Missouri, and Heidi Heitkamp in North Dakota. And Mark Meadows versus Peter Strzok. No, they're not in a boxing match. Well, not of that sort anyway. The top Republican congressman and fired FBI agent, uh, lo- um, his lawyer rather, traded scathing no-holds-barred accusations of deliberate dishonesty yesterday. One day after newly unearthed text messages showed Strzok discussing the media leak strategy uh, with the Justice Department in April of uh, 2017. The texts were first uh, uh, rather outlined in a letter sent by Representative Mark Meadows to Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein on Monday. In one of the messages dated the 10th struck uh, tells former FBI attorney Lisa Page I had literally just gone to find this phone to tell you I want to talk to you about media leak strategy with the Department of Justice before you go well according to Strzok's lawyer Meadows wildly misinterpreted those texts when he told Rosenstein that they should lead a reasonable person to question whether there was a sincere desire to investigate wrongdoing or to place derogatory information in the media to justify a continued probe while the uh, term media leak strategy in Strzok's uh, text refers to a department-wide initiative to detect and stop leaks to the media. The um, uh, Strzok's attorney said on Tuesday the president and his enablers are once again peddling unfounded conspiracy theories to mislead the American people. And a delegation of U.S. cardinals and bishops is going to the Vatican tomorrow to meet with Pope Francis over a sex abuse and cover-up scandal in America roiling the Catholic Church. In addition, embattled Washington Cardinal Donald Wuerl, who is facing calls to step down over his handling of sex abuse cases, revealed he will travel to Rome to meet with the Pope very soon to discuss his possible resignation, which the Cardinal had proposed two years ago. Vatican spokesman Greg Burke said Cardinal Daniel DiNardo, head of the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops, would meet with Francis on Thursday in the Apostolic um, Palace, along with Cardinal Sean O'Malley, Francis' top sex abuse advisor. Also involved are two officials from the U.S. Conference, Los Angeles Archbishop uh, Jose Gomez and Monsignor Brian Bransfield, according to a Vatican statement. DiNardo has said he wants Francis to authorize a full-fledged Vatican investigation into ex-Catholic Theodore McCarrick, who was removed as cardinal in July after a credible accusation he groped a teenager. Donardo also has uh, said uh, has uh, said recent accusations at top Vatican officials, including the Pope, covered up, or McCarrick, rather, and they deserve answers. On this day in 1987, reports surfaced that the Democratic presidential candidate Joe Biden had borrowed, without attribution, passages of a speech by British Labor Party leader Neil Kinnock for one of his own campaign speeches. The Kinnock report, along with other damaging revelations, would uh, prompt uh, Biden to drop his White House bid. That was in 87. And on this day in 1977, South African black student leader and anti-apartheid activist Steve Bilko, 30, died while in police custody, triggering an international outcry. In 1959, on this day, the TV Western series Bonanza premieres on NBC. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. 
is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 22 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our next couple of segments, we're going to talk with author Karen Swallow Pryor, the book on reading well, finding the good life through great books. Well, Attorney General Jeff Sessions said the Department of Justice has convicted more than 580 people for terrorism or terrorism-related charges since 9-11. Speaking at a Department of Justice ceremony to commemorate the 17th anniversary of September 11th attacks, the uh, attorney general said that he is exceedingly proud of the relentless and effective work of the Department of Justice National Security Division and the entire department. He said the DOJ was at the center of much of the country's 9-11 response. The country faced un, uh, uh, well, a security challenge, we'll put it that way, and legal challenges. At the time, we had no National Security Division. Much of the work was done by the criminal division. Some of you here this morning, speaking to the Department of Justice, were here on 9-11 too. Your participation um, uh, was was the result of your firsthand knowledge and experience. We are grateful for the work that you did in the difficult days that followed. Today, we are better equipped, better prepared, better organized. We have better laws, but there is more to be done as our adversaries have not abandoned their goals. Meanwhile, the Transportation Security Administration, or TSA, has come in for a lot of criticism over the years, whether it's for its ineffectiveness and spotting contraband going through its security checkpoints, um, overeager pat-downs of passengers, or just generally being an affront to the liberty and dignity of the traveling public. Well, now the much-maligned agency is taking the 17th anniversary of the tragic violent attacks that brought it into being uh, to roll out a new slogan, one that will hopefully remind Americans that airport security is not just the province of a brave, blue-shirted few. Since our inception, TSA has uh, lived by the motto, Not on My Watch. This has served as a powerful call to action for TSA, said Agency Administrator Dak, uh, David uh, Pekowski in remarks at the September 11th commemoration ceremony in Virginia. But we know that we are stronger together. So today, I ask each and every one of you, whether you are a TSA or a DHS employee, a veteran, an active duty member of the U.S. military, an industry partner, a law enforcement officer, a first responder, or a private citizen, to join me in adopting and embracing a new creed, not on my watch. Everything about this motto is classic TSA. There's, uh, of course, the matter of timing. One might find the anniversary of a major tragedy um, not as appropriate as one might um, imagine in engaging in rebranding. Um, but the agency owes its existence to the terrible events of September 11th and stands only to gain by reminding people of that terrible day and why it exists, even in its most imperfect form. President Trump signed an executive order today imposing sanctions against any election interference Interference, declaring election meddling efforts as a national emergency. The executive order addresses not only interference with campaign and election infrastructure, but also propaganda efforts. The order will require the director of national intelligence, Dan Coats, to conduct regular assessments about potential foreign interference in elections. After the reports are complete, the Treasury and State Departments would decide on appropriate sanctions to impose on the potential actors or countries. The order, according to administration officials, is broad in terms of who and what can be sanctioned. This is a developing story, and we will continue to uh, to follow it. Well, the crowdfunding campaign has raised over a million dollars, or at least might raise over a million dollars, uh, for the opponent of Senator Susan Collins, a Republican out of Maine, if she votes to confirm Brett Kavanaugh for the Supreme Court, a move she likened to bribery. Well, liberal activist groups have posted the campaign on the platform CrowdPack, drawing supporters and critics. Senator Collins votes no on Kavanaugh and you will not be charged and no money will go uh, to fund her future opponent, the platform wrote. Senator Collins votes yes on Kavanaugh and your pledge will go to her opponent's campaign once that opponent has been identified. So this is a nebulous person who at some point would oppose her in the next election. Well, Collins called it an attempt at extortion in response through a spokesperson, according to The Washington Post. And anybody who thinks these tactics would work on Senator Collins obviously doesn't know her, the spokesperson Annie Clark said in a statement. Senator Collins will make up her own mind based on the merits of the nomination. Threats and other attempts to bully her will not play a factor in her decision making whatever. Well, an ethics expert said that uh, told The Post rather that 
that it may, in fact, uh, violate federal bribery statutes. But Jordan Leibowitz, the spokesman for the Citizens for Ethical Ethics and Responsibilities, told the Post it doesn't rise to the level of bribery because there is no agreement. It's just the way money and politics tend to work these days, he said. Meanwhile, supporters um, uh, Julie B. endorsed the campaign, saying women will stand together to protect our rights and what is right. And they're, of course, refer- referring to the right to abortion on demand. The people of Maine are asking you to be a hero, Senator Collins, the campaign wrote, to stand up for the people of Maine and for, the, and for America across the country. Every dollar donated to this campaign will go to your eventual Democratic opponent in 2020. Will you, uh, we will get you out of office. And again, she is, uh, uh, has declared that she will not be influenced by this effort. Well, optimism among small business owners reached a record high in August as Republican passed uh, tax cuts and deregulate, deregulation rather began to bear fruit, according to a survey by the National Federation of Independent Business. The NFIB Small Business Optimism Index hit 108.8 last month, the highest it's been in the index's 45-year history, beating the previous record of 108 uh, that was set back in 1983 under Republican President Ronald Reagan. The record optimism reflects a steady trend of hiring and capital investment among small businesses flush with cash, according to the NFIB analysis. Today's groundbreaking numbers are uh, demonstrative rather, of what I'm hearing every day from the small business owners that business is booming, said NFIB President and CEO Juanita Duggan in a press release on Tuesday. As the tax and regulatory landscape changed, so did small business expectations and plans. Well, speaking of plans, Chicago Mayor Rahm Emanuel is forming a task force that will consider implementing the so-called Universal Basic Income Program in the city as the embattled mayor seeks to cement his progressive legacy after promising not to run for another term. The idea for the program, which would make monthly payments to a number of Chicago families without any conditions, has been floated around in the city for months now. Back in June, Chicago's Northside Aid um, introduced a resolution calling upon the mayor to launch the pilot of the program and pay 1,000 families $500 every month. The new task force set up um, by Emanuel, according to the Chicago Tribune, will have a panel that will decide whether such welfare initiative would work in the city. But the uh, creation of the task force may open Emanuel to criticism as it comes just less than a week after he announced that he won't run for a third term. The decision to implement a potentially costly program will rest on the, soldier, the shoulders rather of the next mayor. Um, the... Paul uh, War told the Tribune that he doesn't believe Emmanuel is creating the task force only to claim credit uh, for it without um, actually implementing it. So the motives are being called into question. Chicago would be the largest city in the country to take this sort of step, he says. I think the mayor sees this as a chance to lead the way as the uh, city tries to grapple with poverty and income inequality at a time the federal government isn't addressing these things. This would be a legacy issue for Emmanuel. May, of course, bankrupt the city, but nonetheless, Emmanuel, for those who support it, His name would be all over it. And finally, a lawsuit has uh, pitted six landlocked states against the state of Washington over a simple question. Who owns the federal ports? Washington state is denying the states the permit required to build a large coal export terminal along the Columbia River. The states have used, uh, have sued rather, and Washington filed a motion for dismissal. But U.S. District Court Judge Robert Bryan rejected Washington state's motion, setting the stage for a legal showdown over who really gets final say over which products flow through the nation's seaports. We're talking about the Constitution and the rule of law. That's a quote from Montana Attorney General Tim Fox. One state can't discriminate against another state's commodities in this way. Well, the courts will ultimately decide if one state can. That suit is now moving forward. 31 minutes after four o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we'll talk with Karen Swallow Pryor, author of On Reading Well, Finding the Good Life Through Great Books. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We are back 36 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, curled up on a couch immersed in a dog-eared copy of The Great Gatsby or Persuasion is more than a pleasurable way to spend an afternoon. It's an exercise in building good character. That's according to acclaimed author and scholar Karen Swallow Pryor. She makes the case for reading as a, a school for virtue in her new book on reading well, finding the good life through great books. She says that um, the attentiveness uh, necessary for deep reading requires patience, the skill of interpretation, 
meditation requires prudence and the decision to set aside time to read in a world rife with so many other choices competing for our attention requires a kind of temperance. Friar guides readers through 12 great works that exemplify the virtues that philosophers and theologians throughout history have identified as essential for good character and which are still necessary for human flourishing. The cardinal virtues of prudence, temperance, justice, and courage, the theological virtues of faith, hope, and love, and the heavenly virtues of chastity, diligence, patience, kindness, and humility. She illuminates the meaning and practice of each virtue in something surpri- in some surprising ways. On Reading Well delves into the uh, uh, works of authors such as Jane Austen, Charles Dickens, Flannery O'Connor, and others. And we're delighted to talk about the book and maybe encourage you to pick up some uh, works and encourage uh, young people to do the same. Karen Swallow Pryor is a PhD. She is an award-winning professor of English at Liberty University in Lynchburg, Virginia. She's the author of Booked Literature in the Soul of Me and Fierce Convictions, The Extraordinary Life of Hannah Moore, Poet, Reformer, Abolitionist. Prior to, um, Pryor has rather written for Christianity Today, The Atlantic, The Washington Post, First Things, Vox, Think Christian, and the Gospel Coalition. She is a research fellow with the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention, a senior fellow with Liberty University's Center for Apologetics and Cultural Engagement, a senior fellow with the Trinity Forum, and a member of the Faith Advisory Council of the Humane Society of the United States. She joins us today to talk about her book on reading well, finding the good life through great books. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Well, this is an exciting um, a call to great literature. The subtitle of your book is Finding the Good Life Through Great Books. Let's begin by talking about what the good life is. Well, that phrase, the good life, actually goes back to Aristotle, and it's sometimes translated actually as happiness, which is actually the word that the founding fathers of America meant when they talked about in the Declaration of of Independence, our right to the pursuit of happiness. And Aristotle and the founders and many uh, church fathers and theologians in between understood that what the good life really entails is good character. And of course, freedom um, allows us to pursue good character, but that ultimately it's our character that can really only is the only thing that can provide the good life that they were talking about. Now, reading good literature, you um, propose in the book, uh, has the the capacity to cultivate virtue. How does reading good literature, we'll talk about what we mean by good literature in a few moments, (laughs) but how does that help to cultivate virtue? Well, as you mentioned in the introduction, just the skills required to read good literature, literary classics, as opposed to the things that we read just for information or entertainment, requires some of some of the virtues that, that contribute to good character, patience and diligence and temperance. But more so than that, these, these classic works of literature um, allow us to encounter characters who are complex and often ambiguous and we have to make judgments and assessments about them in the same way that we have to make judgments and assessments about real people that we encounter and ourselves. So literary characters actually have a lot to teach us about character. Well, give us a quick overview of the classic virtues. Sure. There are there are lots of different lists of virtues. And so part of my research was figuring out which lists to go by and which ones to use. Um, the early uh, church fathers were pretty much agreed upon what they called the four cardinal virtues. And those are prudent, temperance, courage, and, um, and justice. And so those are pretty much agreed upon. And then within the Christian tradition, we have what we call the theological virtues, which ultimately come only from God, um, not from our own human uh, designs, and those are faith, hope, and love. And there are actually seven heavenly virtues, or Christian virtues, they're sometimes called, but two of them are also cardinal virtues. So um, I cover the the other five of those that remained chastity, diligence, patience, kindness, and humility. And those are the 12 that I cover in the book. And and there are lots of others out there, but those those are the primary ones, I think, that that, um, have the most discussion in tradition. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, virtue, the the idea of a virtuous life is not something we hear discussed uh, or read um, referenced very often these days. Has the notion of a virtuous life been lost, generally speaking? Well, I think so. Um, One of the philosophers that I uh, draw on in my book uh, wrote a book called After Virtue, and he talks about how when we live in an age, which is really the modern age, where we don't agree on even the existence of God or if there is a God, who he is, 
um, it's hard for us to share a common purpose or meaning for life. So if we don't even share a sense of what human life means, what we're here for, then we really can't even agree on what virtue is because virtue is really just the meaning of virtue is excellence. And so we can't know what marks human excellence unless we know what the meaning of our lives are in the same way that we can't say a car is excellent unless we know what it's supposed to do or that you know a knife is excellent unless we know what its purpose is. Uh, it's the same with human existence. Unless we understand what our purpose is, we really don't know what makes for an excellent human life. So we can't really talk about what, what those excellencies are. Um, and of course, because we don't agree on what they are, we certainly don't see very many of them, I think, in, in civil discourse and politics today. Was there a particular period of time or an event that led to this, this loss of interest in the virtues? Or is this just the natural trajectory of, of a people uh, walking away from its core values and principles? Well, a lot of philosophers will point to the Enlightenment, um, so the 17th and 18th century as a time when we turned away from, you know, an external objective authority like God and turned to subjective inner experience. And so this really began a long time ago, um, but we just are seeing this long trajectory being played out. Um, and, you know, it took a long time, but its roots really, many would say, are in the Enlightenment when we began to put more faith in man's reason than in you know, divine providence. We're talking about the book on reading well, finding the good life through great books. In the book, you not only uh, highlight the 12 virtues that you mentioned a moment ago, but you suggest a particular literature that helps to uh, to challenge us and to uh, broaden our thinking about these virtues. Among them is Henry Fielding uh, in his book, The History of Tom Jones, a foundling. Uh, talk a little bit about how this reveals a high moral purpose and how, as we're reading this kind of literature, we might look for the virtues that can inform not only our thinking, but our practice. Well, Fielding's The History of Tom Jones is is a longtime classic work of literature, but one that's been kind of lost, and most people probably haven't heard of it or certainly haven't read it unless they had to take a class from me in 18th century English literature <laughs> or some such thing. Um, but Fielding was actually writing in this very period that I was just talking about, the 18th century, when this shift was occurring between, you know, are we going to believe in, you know, divine authority or in ourselves? And Fielding still believes in divine authority. And so um, he writes about virtue a great deal in this epic length novel about a young man who has to find his way in the world. It's very, it's a very allegorical story um, because his bad behavior gets him kicked out of his um, guardian's home, which is called Paradise Hall. So he's kicked out of paradise. Um, and his whole journey that he takes, which is filled with all kinds of antics um, and shenanigans, and he's a lusty young fellow and he has to learn a lot before he can become virtuous. And the thing that he has to learn the most in order to have that happy ending is prudence, which is a which is a kind of wisdom. Um, the ancients called it applied wisdom, like what it means to not just have a theoretical wisdom, but how, what that looks like on the ground in the real world. And that prudence is considered um, the, the first virtue. We have to have prudence in order to have any of the others. We're going to continue our conversation, but I do need to take a quick break. Again, we're talking this afternoon about the book on reading well, finding the good life through great books. Karen Swallow Pryor is my guest. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We are back 51 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Hey, let me ask you, have you read any good books lately? Well, today we're talking about reading well. And in fact, the book we're reviewing on reading well, finding the good life through great books. Some of these great books titles have been lost to us. Others are perhaps a bit more familiar, but all of them that are suggested in the book reflect some of the great virtues. We're talking with uh, uh, the author, Karen Swallow Pryor, uh, about this great book. Let's talk about um, The Great Gatsby. Now, most of us are familiar with the story, not necessarily because we've read the book, but because there have been recent movies made about it. We know that Jay Gatsby, the main character, is the epitome of excess. What virtue can we learn from a good read of The Great Gatsby, for example? Well, through negative example in Jay Gatsby, we can learn about temperance. Um, And of course, as you mentioned, Gatsby is the exact opposite. 
opposite of that. He lives this life of, of material excess, sexual excess, drunkenness, um, and uh, and many people, if they have read it, probably was just in high school and it's a hazy memory. Um, the most recent film adaptation is actually quite good, I think, and what I would recommend that for anyone who wants to be re-familiarized with the story. But what we learn through uh, Gatsby's example and this destructive life of excess that he lives is temperance. And uh, we think often of temperance as, you know, we talk about losing our temper or temperature. It really is uh, a modulation or a gauge. And all of the virtues, including temperance, are not about simply restraining or avoiding something. Uh, according, Aristotle conceived of each virtue as being a moderation or a mean between an extreme of excess and an extreme of deficiency. So temperance isn't denying ourselves any you know, physical pleasures. Um, we have to eat to live, we have to drink to live, and we have to reproduce for the human race to continue. So these are natural desires, and it's not that they are to be denied, but we are to desire them in proper order or proportion. So, so temperance really is that mediation between self-denial and self-indulgence. And boy, you know, we don't have to read The Great Gatsby, I don't think, to understand how hard that is for us. We live in a very materialistic, consumeristic culture. Um, many of us have indulgences that are hard to temper, whether it's food or, in my case, shoes. Um, <laughs> and so just just learning how to not just deny things. Aristotle said, and, and Aquinas agreed with him later on, that that it's, it's really actually about our inner desire. So it's not enough to say, oh, I really want that piece of cake, but I'm not going to have it. It's actually to just not desire it because you've had you know, enough to eat or enough sweets or to not desire another pair of shoes because I have enough. Um, so it's a temperance is a really, really hard virtue. It's very personal and private. We may not even, others may not know we're struggling with it because it does have to do not with, with our, just our outward acts, but our inner desires. Mm. One of the things that you write about is how difficult uh, justice as a virtue is to attain. Uh, but you write about a tale of two cities and many of us uh, consider the main character, Sidney Carton's uh, uh, sacrifice, uh, noble and aspirational. But you make the point that uh, his noble sacrifice, as we would uh, refer to it, uh, was in fact unjust. What can we uh, learn about um, justice from A Tale of Two Cities? Oh, this was really the hardest virtue to write about because justice, I think, is the most complicated virtue. Mm-hmm. Um, while while temperance is you know, personal and private, justice applies to both us as individuals, like we are either just people or we're not, but it also applies to a society or a community. Communities can be just or unjust. And, you know, if we know the story of A Tale of Two Cities, we know Sidney Carton is a great hero and he, he sacrifices his life for the sake of the woman he loves and, and her husband. Um, and it is a great sacrifice, but if we truly understand justice, we know that his sacrifice is not just because the sentence was not just. He was being... Um, his, the person he was standing in for was being punished for a crime he should not have been cu- punished for because injustice works that way. It just spirals outward, outward, and, and gets bigger and larger and consumes more and more people. But also, justice toward our justice requires that we be just toward ourselves. That we that we mediate between selfishness and selflessness. And Sidney Carton really did not. Um, he he was he did not esteem himself enough he thought his life was not worthy and that he was not good and so he himself was not just toward himself um that doesn't mean i mean he was an admirable character this is why this is what makes mm-hmm. great literature so great the characters aren't black and white they're complex and that's why we can learn so much from them mm-hmm. again the book we're talking about is on reading well finding the good life through great books um some as i mentioned earlier are lost to us others the titles we might be familiar with maybe there's been a movie made the books are always better than the movie and uh, like you i would encourage people to rediscover some of them and to read discover the virtues that uh, so often they reflect. Um, the uh, You include uh, the bleak post-apocalyptic uh, world uh, from the book The Road um, as an affirmation of, of goodness. Uh, so we're not talking about just books written a long time ago, but some that are more current as well. Talk about why this one made the list. 
Yeah, uh, Cormac McCarthy's road uh, book, The Road, is a is a more probably the most recent one I cover in the book. I think it will uh, end up being a classic that passes the test of time. It is a desolate and despairing story. I, I definitely have a personal taste for darker literature. Um, but by contrast, it does, I think, embody uh, the virtue of hope because it involves uh, just this man and his son, and they, they're never named. It's just the man and the boy um, trying to save their lives in this post-apocalyptic world and travel to the warmer climate and the sea. And the man, you know, in order to continue this journey to save his, his life and his son's life in such despairing conditions, the man really has to find hope and he has to cling to whatever pieces of goodness that they can find. And none of our lives, I, I don't think, will ever be as bad as, the, as these characters' lives are, but they still provide an example for us of how part of the human condition is, is that we can find hope and we can find goodness and we desire that. Um, even, even apart from God, human beings desire this. And so in this world where God is absent, I think it actually does point to not just the natural hope that all human beings share and desire, but even how that natural hope points to the supernatural hope that, that comes only from God. It's a very powerful book, and um, and uh, I think it really does depict hope. Well, we're talking about the book on reading well, finding the good life through great books, not only focusing on and drawing our attention to the great virtues, but also suggesting books that will help reflect those virtues and challenge us to think more deeply about how uh, how much we need to understand and apply them to our own lives. Uh, Dr. Pryor, thank you so much for talking with us today. I really appreciate it. Oh, I enjoyed talking with you. Thank you for having me. Have a good night. Again, the book on reading well, Karen Swallow Pryor, PhD, is the author, and the book is published by Brazos Press. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we're going to have news and traffic. When we come back, we'll talk with Nick Loris. He's a Herbert and Joyce Morgan Fellow in Energy and Environmental Policy at the Center for Free Markets and Regulatory Reform. We'll talk about Hurricane Florence that's barreling toward the Carolina coast and the suggested link to climate change. That and more after this. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Now, all of us are watching the trajectory of Hurricane Florence as it's barreling its way toward the Carolina coast. We don't know what, uh, <clears throat> if it's going to be a three, a four, we don't know what it's going to be when it finally hits land. But despite the uh, the size and the scope of this uh, event, man-made warming didn't cause Florence. Well, so says my next guest. As the Global Climate Action Summit kicks off, it's important to fight back against the false narrative of what caused this event and other events like it. Joining us to talk about that is uh, Nick Loris, he is a Herbert and Joyce Morgan Fellow in Energy and Environmental Policy at the Center for Free Markets and Regulatory Reform at Heritage Foundation. Hey, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Well, here we have uh, another hurricane approaching, and it happens to uh, be headline news at the same time that the Global Climate Action Summit is kicking off. First of all, tell us about the summit and what they are suggesting about this and previous, and I'm supposing future hurricanes. Yeah, it's really predicated on the notion that we are headed toward catastrophic warming uh, and that uh, just about every natural disaster uh, from Hurricane Katrina on uh, to what we saw last year and now with Hurricane Florence uh, is to blame um, on man-made greenhouse gas emissions, most notably those from burning fossil fuels. Uh, and you know, even though this has been uh, proven not to be true from uh, reputable sources like the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change and our own National uh, Atmospheric uh, Ocean Administration uh, or, or NOAA, um, you know, they continue on with this march that we need to eradicate the use of fossil fuels. Well, it's very useful to keep uh, making that claim. Now, Hurricane Florence, where we had been told at one point was a Category 5 uh, hurricane. It's now been downgraded, and they either think that it may, when it makes landfall, be downgraded uh, still um, uh, yet. Uh, you've already pointed out that there is no um, connection between the fact that we have hurricanes, the magnitude of them, and um, man-made climate change, I suppose is the right way to put it um, right now. But for the sake of argument, let's grant that um, climate change is the result of um, fossil fuels. What difference could we make 
if that were the case. Uh, if we were to impose a, a carbon tax, for example, um, to offset or to uh, limit um, uh, emissions in order to have an impact on the uh, on the environment? Yeah, pretty much nothing. Uh, and this has been admitted by a, a number of climatologists and even environmental activist organizations who feel like we're not doing enough um, with enacting a carbon tax or uh, the, the global carbon emission reductions from entering into the Paris Agreement. A lot of the environmental activists said that that would be uh, too weak of an agreement. Uh, and r- really, they're right. Uh, I mean, the fact is, even if we reduced our CO2 emissions down to zero, and they have been decreasing, in fact, we've we're the world's uh, largest leader in reducing greenhouse mm-hmm. gas emissions thanks to fracking last year. But even if we reduce those emissions down to zero, um, you're talking about mitigating global temperatures uh, a few tenths of a degree Celsius by the turn of the century. Uh, and even if we got all the industrialized nations on board, uh, it doesn't make much of a difference. Even uh, uh, Secretary John Kerry um, and former Senator John Kerry uh, admitted as much when he was negotiating the Paris Agreement. Now, one of the things that we're being told is that we're seeing uh, greater frequency in terms of these kinds of uh, disasters, Hurricane Florence and others, and that the severity has increased. And this is evidence that uh, we are somehow uh, encouraging or contributing to these events. Are we seeing more and more severe events of this uh, type uh, upon which much of the the rhetoric is being based? Yeah, we're not. And uh, again, this is directly from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change report, which again, the the likes of Al Gore and, and Kerry hail as the magnum opus for climate reports. Um, but but to di- directly quote from them, uh, they say that current data sets indicate no significant observed trends in global co- tropical cyclone frequency over the past century, and it remains uncertain whether any reported long-term increases in tropical cyclone frequency are robust after accounting for these past changes. So uh, quite simply, the answer is no for uh, a number of different natural disasters, not just hurricanes, but floods, drought, uh, heat waves, uh, you know, all sorts of these things. So why do we keep hearing this? I mean, that's the, the frustrating part is that when you have an, a, an objective, authoritative source saying the contrary, um, why is the voice that's that's misleading the public the loudest and most persistent? Yeah, it's frustrating. And, and it's mostly because, uh, at least I believe, because it's such an emotional pull is that, yes, hurricanes do a lot of damage um, and they rip people's homes away. Um, it, it causes a loss of life. Uh, and, and that's uh, a, a difficult thing to, to grab with and it's a good opportunity uh, as a, a lot of folks to say to never let a crisis go to waste and, and so they use natural disasters as a connection to take action on climate change uh, even if that's not the truth and even if the proposed policy solution uh, will do nothing to actually combat these natural disasters if anything it'll make us worse off by uh, spending resources on uh, activities that will um, cost more money and, and leave us um, no more prepared uh, rather than actually implementing the right type of uh, infrastructure and mechanisms to help us better withstand hurricanes uh, and other natural disasters. Are you satisfied that enough attention is being focused on what we actually can do that you've just described as opposed to the distraction um, that suggests there are things we should do that won't have any impact at all? No, I mean, I think adaptation is a great strategy and we've seen that work effectively just by uh, the simple uh, luxuries of having air conditioning when we have a drought uh, and um, home heating uh, when temperatures are frigid. You know, we adapt to climate change quite well. uh, And when we have better infrastructure and higher levels of prosperity to spend on these things and can build better levees and and dikes and and stronger seawalls, we can better protect against the changing climate. But uh, that's certainly not enough for a a lot of the activists who seem pretty clearly bent on uh, restricting the use of fossil fuels. And a lot of them dismiss what is the most carbon-free source of energy that we have on this planet in nuclear power, uh, which shows you uh, a lot of times this is not about even addressing climate change. It's about trying to re-engineer our economy away from coal, oil, natural gas, and nuclear to politically preferred sources uh, of renewable power. 
Well, I appreciate your um, helping us to put this into perspective as we anticipate landfall for Hurricane Florence. Uh, Nick Loris, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks again for having me. Appreciate it. Again, Nick Loris is a uh, Herbert and Joyce Morgan Fellow in Energy and Environmental Policy at the Center for Free Markets and Regulatory Reform. He pointed out in an article on the subject that the U.S. could slap a $40 tax on all carbon dioxide emissions and the climate benefits would be hardly noticeable by the year 2100. Uh, the averted warming would be less than two-tenths of a degree Celsius, and the averted sea level rise would be less than two centimeters. The costs, however, would be staggering, putting things into uh, some perspective. Hurricane Florence's uh, potentially devastating winds are generating enormous waves as high as 83 feet, and it it continues to make its way toward the east coast, and the uh, insurers predict it will become the costliest such storm to ever hit the continental United States, something to keep in mind, as I'm certain we'll be hearing about the, uh, uh, the needs of those who are impacted by it in the days ahead, as it's expected not only to make landfall, but to remain um, and continue to uh, do damage for uh, quite some period of time. So keep that in mind. Well, coming up next, we're going to give you an opportunity to hear Michael Jr., who, of course, is coming to Gresham on Saturday, 7 o'clock p.m. at East Hill Church. And we're looking forward to hearing this guy who is uh, he's one of the funniest guys I've ever heard. Uh, and the, the good news is his clean comedy can be enjoyed by the whole family. You can still purchase tickets, by the way, at kpdq.com. All the important details are there. Again, Michael Jr. coming to the Portland area in Gresham at East Hill Church on this Saturday, 7 o'clock p.m. Tickets available at kpdq.com. Quick break. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show brought to you in part today, ladies and gentlemen, by Zero Res. So looking forward to that. Tomorrow on the program, we're going to talk with Kay Wills Wyma. She's the author of Not the Boss of Us, Putting Overwhelmed in Its Place in the do-all world. And take notes for that, uh, that interview that's coming up tomorrow on the program. And then on Friday, we're looking forward to focusing on the lighter side of the news and hope you can uh, join us for that. A lot of serious things going on all around us. It gives us great opportunity to pray um, and to uh, contribute where we can. But we're going to step away from that for one day, at least one day of the week. And on Friday, that is the day. So we're looking forward to that. Taking a look at Bucharest, Romania, senators there have voted to place the constitutional marriage amendment on their ballot, paving the way for the Constitution there to explicitly state that marriage is a union of a man and a woman. A nationwide referendum will take place in October, the 7th to be precise. Senators voted 107 to 13 with seven abstentions to allow a referendum that could change the Constitution, which currently states that marriage is a union between spouses to affirm marriage as the union of a man and a woman. The vote comes after Parliament's uh, Chamber of Deputies last year overwhelmingly approved the same measure. Well, more than three million Romanian citizens signed a petition last year asking for a nationwide referendum to define marriage as one man and one woman union in the nation's constitution. This is particularly impressive in a nation of less than 20 million people. The petition was unanimously approved by Romanian's constitutional court as well. Well, Liberty Council's uh, client Kentucky clerk Kim Davis and Harry Miet, uh, Liberty Council's vice president of uh, legal affairs and chief litigation counsel, visited Romania last year to discuss the impact of same-sex marriage on religious liberty and freedom of conscience there. Ms. Davis uh, was jailed, you might recall, for six days because her conscience prohibited her from authorizing a marriage that is contrary to natural marriage between a man and a woman. Well, Mr. Mayet is a native of Romania. He grew up under Romanian, uh, Romania's uh, repressive communist regime and witnessed its violent demise in the Christmas Revolution of 1989, which started in his hometown. Uh, during their nine-day visit last year, uh, he and uh, Ms. Davis held conferences in Romania's largest cities, including Bucharest, Cluj, Sibiu, um, and others. Uh, they met with two archbishops of the Orthodox Church and other leaders of Romania's largest denomination. The pair's message was simple. Same-sex marriage and freedom of conscience are mutually exclusive because those who promote the former have zero tolerance for the latter. Says um, Mr. Miet, I am pleased that my native country will finally have the chance to decide for itself the meaning of marriage. Uh, This referendum is long overdue. Romanians love freedom and understand the dangers of same-sex marriage on the rights of those who do not wish to support or participate in it. I am confident that the referendum will succeed. And again, that's going to be on their ballot October the 7th. 
We talked um, this uh, earlier this week, I guess it was Monday, we talked about the recently concluded um, City Fest that the Palau team uh, conducted. But I didn't mention that in Eugene, another City Fest was also uh, carried out. And Luis Palau um, points out that it was a great week in Eugene. The Lord worked in awesome ways in Lane County at numerous outreaches and City Fest at uh, PK Park. The event was a fun-filled day of music, action sports, activities for kids, multiple opportunities for individuals to hear a powerful message of hope in Jesus Christ. It makes me long for the days when we here in Portland, where the City Fest model was birthed, uh, to experience and enjoy another one. But we'll see what happens in the future. The event featured award-winning artist Toby Mack, uh, Tadashi, I think I have that right, and Rend Collective, and a message of hope from global speaker and author Andrew Palau. There are too many evangelists who don't know the Bible, uh, says a local pastor, again from Eugene. Many churches have lost their connection to teach the word. Not Andrew. The message he shared focused on what the Bible says. The message was powerful and was for unbelievers and for Christians, too. End quote. Well, there was uh, something for everyone, including an interactive family fun zone filled with inflatable games, inflatables, plural, games, crafts, sports challenges, and a children's stage show featuring a ventriloquist, Mark Thompson. Uh, There was also demonstrations of awe-inspiring stunts from professional skaters and BMX and freestyle motor um, uh, motocross riders um, says another who attended the event. We've been amazed these last several months as we've watched God take the church in Lane County, Oregon, to a deeper level of unity, leading many people to Christ, challenging hundreds of believers in their walk with God and training hundreds of individuals in personal evangelism. Craig Curtis, who's a local pastor, said people in Eugene are finally seeing Eugene Church in a different light, and a festival like this helps with that. Outreaches in the week leading up to City Fest included a breakfast for first responders, a dinner for women, outreach at a youth correctional facility, a skate outreach, and the festival on Saturday. But it all started way earlier. Uh, The festival had been in the works for years. And as we know here in Portland, and those of you who have been involved, it does take a long period of time to prepare for uh, that kind of successful week. Um, Over the past several months, we've seen the Lord unite the church through a university outreach, the Renew Gathering um, with Francis Chan, One Hope Projects, and so much more. More than 9,500 people were in attendance on Saturday, which was the largest gathering in the history of the ballpark, which is pretty significant. We're talking about the city of Eugene, college town. More than 850 confessions of faith as a result of the campaign, 113 partnering churches, which is another tremendous story. Hundreds of believers trained in friendship evangelism and new believer follow-up. Hundreds of volunteers. I'm always excited when there are new uh, believers uh, that are a part of this event, but to, to have the churches partnering together and to have hundreds of believers trained in how to share the gospel and how to reach out uh, to f- and follow up and, and uh, disciple new believers is a tremendous uh, benefit as well. Going forward, Andrew Palau, along with City Fest Executive Committee and the Luis Palau Association, hope the uh, unity established through City Fest continues to deepen and spread, eventually encouraging more citywide outreach efforts and ongoing service initiatives throughout Lane County. People need hope everywhere, especially in Eugene, says local pastor Steve Hill. City Fest gave people a reason to be hopeful about today about the future. So be encouraged. There are events taking place uh, in our own state of Oregon, not to exclude our Washington neighbors, um, that uh, we need to be encouraged by. And again, I'm so grateful for the Palau Association that is able to pull these um, events off so well because they connect strongly with the local church. And when the church comes together for the sake of the gospel and evangelism, it's always a beautiful, beautiful thing. So congratulations to the Palau uh, Association. And we can uh, certainly pray that in Eugene, the churches would continue to unite and accomplish what God ultimately calls all of us to be engaged in, and that sharing his gospel. All right, once again, tomorrow on the program, we're going to talk with Kay Willis-Wyma. She's the author of Not the Boss of Us, Putting Overwhelmed in Its Place in a, to- in a Do-All World. I'm going to have to work on saying that. It's a bit of a challenge. I want to thank James Blinn for producing and engineering today's program. Thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Be sure to check out Michael uh, Jr. Uh, tickets on kpdq.com. Have a good night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. 
The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.